it's your host Zarya Hart, finally reporting for duty for a new episode of Culture Crash. Now, before I begin, I want to start with a huge apology because this is not only my first episode of 2022, but of the school year as well. I, I mean, junior year is really no joke, but you know, why not come back during the beautiful month that is Black History Month? And don't worry, I'm back and I'm here to talk about all things black culture and I definitely want to get some things moving. But since it has been a while since my last episode, I'm going to give you guys a little bit of an explanation of how the show's going to go first. I'm going to give you guys some facts and information about some things that are happening in the black community. And then I'm going to switch over to answer some of your guys' questions. If you'd like to submit a question, send it to my email at zshart at bsu.edu. Then again, it is zshart at bsu.edu. So I chose something that really hit close to home for me, and that is the Lawrence Smith Fields case. And if you're not familiar with it, that's totally fine. I'm going to explain it to you. Um, so on December 12, 2021, so around the end of last year, there was a 23-year-old black woman from Connecticut who was found dead in her apartment after a Bumble date. If you're not familiar what Bumble is, it's an online dating app, okay? But similar to Breonna Taylor's case, the investigation was just a mess, okay? There was like, you know what? Before I even get into that, I'm going to explain a little bit of backstory of her date and what we do know, okay? So let's do that first. Disclaimer, okay? Lauren Smithfield's date's name was Michael LaFontaine. I have heard several different pronunciations of his last name. So for the sake of this episode, I'm going to pronounce it as La Fontaine. Okay, cool. So in the police report, it says her date, Michael La Fontaine, told police that he had arrived at Smithfield's residence that night before her death after she invited him over because you know it's a date. They were drinking shots of tequila when she became ill and went to the bathroom to vomit. Like I said, this is what La Fontaine told the police according to the report. Continuing on, um, in CNN's January 25th article, it says that after her return, they continued drinking tequila with mixers, played games, ate food, and started watching a movie according to the police. Fast forward, La Fontaine told police that Smithfields fell asleep on the couch and he reportedly carried her to bed and fell asleep next to her. Her date even said he heard her snoring when he woke up early that morning to use the bathroom. When he woke up again around 6.30 a.m., he saw that she wasn't breathing and had blood coming out of her nose, which is why he called the police. Fast forward again um, to last week, the last week of January. The medical examiner ruled Smithfield's death was accidental and caused by acute intoxication due to a combined effects of fentanyl, promethazine, hydroxine, and alcohol. So now that we've talked about what we do know, let's talk about where things start to get messy. So this is still facts and information. It's just more so these are quotes from family, police, and all that, okay? So where it first gets messy is the fact that the police did not notify her family. 
According to Mirna Al-Sharif and Maya Brown CNN article, the police did not notify Smithfield's family of her death, Crossland said. And Crossland is the Smithfield's family attorney. And instead, the family found out a day later after visiting her home and finding a note from the landlord on Smithfield's apartment door. Can you imagine finding out this way? I mean, heaven forbid, but like if this was my sister, I would be livid. And then, and then to make matters worse, Rachel Treisman reported in her MPHR article that Smithfield's brother, Tabar Gray Smith, said a detective later told him that they didn't need to reach out to the family because, I quote, we had her passport and her ID, so we knew who she was. That whole thing of them not notifying her family just screams that we don't really have any respect or decency when it comes to the passing of your daughter and your sister. Because why would you not want to tell the family? It's, that's just awful to me. Moving on. Second, officers collected several items as evidence, including more than $1,300 in cash, her passport, a credit card, and her cell phone, according to the police report. Which seems fine until we find out that only after being urged by Smithfield's family that key pieces of evidence weren't being processed by police until two weeks after her death. And those key pieces would be, as reported by MPHR's Rachel Treisman's report, or article, my apologies, included bloodied sheets, drinks, a pill, and a condom with semen in it. Yeah, do what you want with that information. Third, her date has not been in custody or interrogated. When police were asked why they didn't place the man who was the last person to see her alive, police said he seemed like a nice guy. I quote, that, that's an actual quote. He seemed like a nice guy. Okay. And even though I'm not a professional, it seems bizarre that the last person who saw Smith feels alive isn't a suspect, simply because he cooperated with the police. Lastly, the detectives assigned to the Lauren Smithfield's case were, as the family, Lauren Smithfield's family quotes, rude. CBS News reported that the first detective assigned to the case told them to stop calling to ask about the investigation, by them I mean Smithfield's family, and at one point hung up on her father. What this tells me is that, especially considering that they've already didn't notify her family of her passing, but now that they're having an attitude for wanting answers, this tells me that there is a lack of respect to her case, to Lauren Smithfield's case, and of a lack of respect to her family. So if I were them, and even though I'm not them, I'm concerned about will I ever get answers? Are you trying, actively trying to get answers? So those four reasons alone are just extremely messy, okay? So before I close out this section, 
Lawrence McField's family lawyer said, when a white woman goes missing, the whole world drops everything. We are done with this valuation. And you may absolutely disagree with what I'm about to say, and, and that's fine, but this shows missing white girl syndrome at its best. For example, the Gabby Petito case. Don't get me wrong, what happened to her was awful, and I hope that her family gets justice one day. But it was hard not to know about her case. And then on the other hand, we have cases like Lauren Smithfields, Brenda Lee Rawls, and Jelani Day, and several other black women and men who don't get the media coverage or those manhunts, you know? They don't get that same treatment as someone like Gabby Petito. And I will say, if you don't know about Brenda Lee Rawls or Jelani Day's cases, I would definitely familiarize, familiarize yourself with them, okay? And don't for a second think I'm bashing white women, okay? We just want the same type of treatment when people that look like me go missing. I'll let you sit on that, okay? Anyway, the Bridgeport, Connecticut police just completely mishandled this investigation of her death. Um, Abby Cruz's ABC News article states that Smithfield's family is now planning to sue the city of Bridgeport and the police department, claiming in the file legal notice that police failed to implement the proper crime scene investigation team to collect physical evidence and refused to view the last person to see Smithfield's before she died as a person of interest. You know what time it is. All right, so we're going to make it towards the light now. And we're going to do, you know, a fun little question. I mean, at least I think it's fun. And the question for this week is, can white students apply and go to HBCUs? I actually really like this question because I never really even thought of it as a question. But, but before I even answer, HBCUs, for those that don't know, stands for Historically Black Colleges and Universities. But anyway, yes, white people can definitely apply and attend um, HBCUs. And if they didn't, that would definitely be segregation. But what people forget is that HBCUs were like primarily conceived with the intention of providing black students access to higher education. But nowhere did it say that HBCUs ever deny any race or race education. But I will say, if you are planning on attending or even applying to an HBCU, ask yourself, are you going to fully allow yourself to broaden your racial perspective all right so that is actually all the time we have for today thank you so much for listening i hope you enjoyed and got to learn a little bit today for those who want to know this podcast is in partnership with the awesome ball state university's daily news this is your girl zaria hart remember to stay open-minded and don't forget that we just crushed it